Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, Wall Street kicking off the new week with a closely watched jobs report. I'm Tom Busby and I'll have that story. I'm Stephen Carroll in London where we're thinking about what's in store for London's restaurant and cultural scenes in 2024 as the economic backdrop in the UK remains gloomy. I'm Doug Krisner with a look at what the new year may mean for markets in China, India and Japan. I'm Kaylee Lyons from Washington where we're looking ahead to a very busy political season. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the business news you need to wrap up your week. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with a key economic report to begin 2024. This Friday, We get the jobs report for the month of December. And with the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates unchanged since July, each report takes on more significance for the central bank's next move. For more, we're pleased to welcome Bloomberg News U.S. economist Elisa Winger. Well, we've seen a pretty resilient U.S. labor market, along with continued consumer spending that has kept the economy growing, even flourishing throughout this past year, 2023. Just this past week, though, first-time jobless claims showing layoffs are in check, continuing claims a little higher. What are you expecting to see in the December jobs report this Friday? We are expecting to see a slowdown, softer gains. Um, What uh, Bloomberg Economics is predicting is 135K jobs being created, which is down from 199 prior. And that's our estimate is below the consensus estimate of um, 170. Also, we are expecting higher unemployment rate um, ticking up to 3.9 from 3.7 prior and also above the consensus, which is expecting unemployment rate to uptick to just 3.8 percent. But why the slowdown? I think the biggest the biggest reason is in the month of November, we saw that 41K jobs came from the resolution of a strike. That's just not going to happen. That's not going to repeat in, in December. Given that, we're just going to see us as a much slower, much softer growth. Also, what we saw in November and what we are expecting in December is that um, not a lot of sectors are creating jobs. In November, although, sure, we got a number that beat, beat the consensus, Um, It was mostly the government and healthcare sector that created jobs. And that sort of um, thing we're also going to see in December. So overall, less jobs being created and probably, 
you know, we're going to be surprised to the downside. Now, you spoke about the healthcare sector, government sector. These, uh, will you see these continued growth in the new year? And are there other sectors where you really see a pullback expected? So these are acyclical sectors. They're not being affected by a downturn um, or any sort of slowdown in economic activity. So these sectors could still grow. Mine, mine as well grow in, in the next year. Uh, but uh, as we've, we've seen in the November jobs, jobs report, a lot of the sectors were either flat or decline. Like, for example, retail sales is very cyclical and jobs in retail sectors decline or whole, tr- whole trade. Um, so, so we're probably going to see a lot less job creation in those consumer-facing industries. And you talked about uh, manufacturing, you know, the UAW strike that ended 41,000 added November's numbers, which skewed it a lot higher than maybe than it should have been. Where do you see manufacturing heading? So I think, you know, ISM manufacturing is going to come out on Wednesday and sector has gonna, is going to be in contraction for 14 straight months. Um, we're not, we probably gonna not going to see a lot of jobs coming. I mean, there's packets of strength within manufacturing coming from the CHIPS Act and AI, but a lot of it is just, you know, as consumer demand is going to slow and we don't expect the holiday season, like National Federation of, of Retailers came out and um, they said that overall holiday um, sales are in between 3 and 4%. Our estimate is at, at the low end of that estimate. So I think we're going to, as we head into the new year, we're going to see less consumer demand. And those industries within manufacturing that produce goods, they're just not going to hire. Mm, now, how about housing, though? We have seen continued demand. We know that existing houses a little uneven, sometimes uh, better than others, but the demand for new houses, which is three jobs for every house going up, how does that look in the future? I do think there's demand for housing and not enough supply. Having said that, the affordability is 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 very low. So even I think even if we would see more housing, more houses being available, um, there is only so much demand. And the demand is being flooded into the new construction market only because there's just not enough existing home for sales. But if the Fed will start cutting rates, that will relieve some of the pressure on both the existing inventory of homes, which will probably rebalance the demand back towards existing home and away from new construction. If the Fed starts cutting rates, and that's what this is all about, whether uh, job growth slows, uh, inflation has uh, you know, slowed down quite a bit. It's not exactly at the Fed's target. Uh, we've seen wage growth slow a little bit, all leading to the first meeting at the end of January for the Fed. And if everything is aligned in the jobs report, what do you expect the Fed to do? Where do you see them in the, in the next few months? We put out an outlook in December ahead of the meeting in December, which was December 12, 13 where everybody, I think most of us were surprised at the tilt, dovish tilt, that Powell basically said, you know, they, they've discussed rate, rate cuts. Um, we anticipated ahead of that meeting that the Fed is going to cut rates in March by 25 basis points and another 100 throughout 2024. And mostly because that aligns with our forecast, we are expecting less jobs this Friday, and we are expecting unemployment rate to go up. 
and we are seeing less holiday sales. We are on the lower end of the forecast. The data is still not fully out for the, for the month of December, but it looks like the holiday sales weren't as strong as people were expecting. So all of that tells us we should get the Fed to cut rates in March. We have uh, the likelihood of job creation slowing down. We have the unemployment rate notching just a, a little bit higher right now, 3.7 to 3.9, you anticipate. It's not cataclysmic. It, it It's not the sign of a recession. Is it just a little bit of a slowdown? What we have, actually, so we not only have 3.9 unemployment rate in, in December, but if unemployment rate goes up to four, that will trigger the SAM rule for identifying a recession. Again, is it going to be a hard lending? No, it's going to be a, a mild recession. We still think that's probably in the cards. And with the Fed, though, cutting rates in March, possibly in March, that's a smart move on the, on the Feds. You know, that's like, that's that's cutting rates against an economy that is showing signs of slowdown. And also, why Powell pivot as much at the December meeting is because inflation surprised to the downside. The six-month annualized core PCE was at 1.9%. So all of that tells tells you that if we're going to get an unemployment rate surprising to the, to the upside, meaning it will go up. I mean, in our forecast shows that unemployment rate can go up even in Q1 to 4.3 and can peak at 5%. That's not a soft landing. That's that's a mild recession. You predict that we're going to see as much as 4.5% in the next three months. 4.3 in Q1, 4.5 in Q2. In Q2. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've got a, a, a work cut out for the Fed, certainly. And they've got, in that time, they have uh, three meetings, right? The the third one ends May 1st. So we could see multiple rate cuts to 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 staunch the, the, the reaction from the economy and from the markets, right? Exactly. And even um, as, as we mentioned um, in the beginning of the segment that um, jobless claims, uh, we're seeing, sure, low, low, low layoffs, but continued claims, if you look at the same the same week, four-week moving average, um, claims, continued claims are up 17% between between this year and last year. That tells you that it's t- the duration of unemployment, meaning is, is, is getting longer and longer. And that's usually the sign where the market is changing, where the when the where the uh, sh- there's a shift going on in the labor market. At first, it started. It's pe- it's taking longer for people to find jobs, um, and then companies manage headcount, going going to manage headcount from attrition to um, to actually layoffs. So that's been happening, and we see that over and over in jobless claims figures. Wow. So this Friday, a lot to look forward to. Our thanks to Bloomberg News U.S. economist, Aliza Winger. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we take you to London for a closer look at the U.K. economy in the new year. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? 
Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. The UK sliding into 2024 with negative growth, with the impact of interest rate hikes still feeding into the economy. Consumers feeling the pinch from the higher cost of living, but they're still spending enough to fuel London's restaurant and cultural scenes. The weaker pound versus the dollar also has helped attract more big spending tourists, particularly from the U.S., for more, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, despite the gloomy economic background in the UK this year, it's been a busy year for London's restaurant scene with several high-profile openings that came after a difficult winter. Add to that not one, but two billion-pound hotel openings. So what's in store for 2024 to discuss? I'm joined by our food editor, Kate Crater, and our Bloomberg Pursuits UK correspondent, Sarah Rappaport. Great to have you both with us. You are our eyes and ears in London. So, Kate, I wanted to start with a serious question for you. Was 2023 a good year for restaurants and for the hospitality sector here in London? I think that the year in hospitality um, and for restaurants, it was a sort of glass half full. So you can look at it and say, after COVID and certainly after the train strikes that hit restaurants last year, right at this time, right when everyone was getting optimistic, this has been a much, much better year. And you're seeing so many signs of recovery. Restaurants that had only been open for four days are now open for five, six, and seven days. And that's a really healthy sign. And places are packed. Um, on the other hand, um, it's rest, places are still struggling. They don't have enough staff. And um, and a report recently came out from an accounting firm, Hacker Young, that said restaurants in London are carrying $3 billion in debt. Wow. So um, as a result of trying to expand too quickly and dealing with problems like food inflation. So there might be underneath the ice that everyone's sort of happily skating on. It might be a little bit thin. So it sort of remains to be seen. So there's things to be really happy about. As you said, there were some fantastic openings. The Wolseley City opened right near our yeah. little blue Convenient offices. around the corner. Yeah. It conveniently opened for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and there's a bunch of things coming in 2024 that are going to be fun. So there's definitely optimism. Um, holiday parties are really booked up this year. But um, I wouldn't say everything's fine and dandy. I wouldn't tie it up with a little ribbon. Okay, so things also looking um, kind of curious as we look towards 2024 as well. Um, Sarah, meanwhile, it's been a booming year for luxury hotels in London in particular. You've written some great pieces about this. What is driving the demand for luxury hotels in London? Well, I mean, it's been a huge year. In September, um, the Raffles London at the Old War Office and the Peninsula both opened, both which cost over a billion dollars each to build. 
And room rates start at over a thousand pounds a night for both. So Grace, one of certainly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very expensive. And in terms of who's actually staying in them, the answer is generally rich Americans and people from the Middle East. Okay, they're very special hotels. They took a really long time to build. The old war office, in particular, is a fascinating one because it's a historical yeah. building. It is. It opened in 1906. It's a grand building. It was the head of, you know, the the grand office of war, right? Mm. During both world wars. Now there's a um, a suite in Churchill's old office with a replica of his desk where he used to work. Wow. It'll cost you about twenty thousand pounds a night if you want to stay there. Okay, but you're but, getting a piece of history. Yeah, a piece of history, which is pretty incredible. Kate and I actually went to a subterranean bar in the basement called the Spy Bar. You know, I've actually heard about this. They used to actually use it as interrogation rooms, right? So now, which is truly the spies used to go down there. MI5 used to have offices there. And now it's a bar with, you know, nice 20 pound martinis. Yeah, indeed. I mean, look, the strength of the dollar has been part of that story as well, is that it's been helped to support those American tourists that are huge for both tourism and for the luxury real estate market. Yeah. Is the fact that they opened this year because of delays because of the pandemic where they planned for? It's because of delays. They were not planned for this year either of them. They're pushback. It's a story in a lot of hotels. Their opening date's a little optimistic. But mm-hmm. they all open within two weeks of each other. Wow. Okay. So competition yeah. in that space as well. Um, Kate, when we think about trends that we've seen over the past year in the food scene, was there anything that stood out for you that was kind of something that you were like, yes, this is, uh, we're now coasting a, a fad? Well, Stephen, here's where I remember that I think we were supposed to go have drinks at a wine bar because last year, at this time, I said wine bars are going to be big in London. Which I was very excited about. I I'm, have to very, I'm still excited for this to happen. <laughs> and the good news for us is that wine bars were indeed a huge trend in London um, in 2023. There's so many of them. There's a place, um, especially in North London, around Newington Green, a place that opened sort of towards the end of last year called Cadet, mm-hmm. has been going super strong. Um, it's so popular. It's been called out. All these, all these places have recognized the chef. They have this charcuterie superstar there. So that's, I think, set the scene for a lot of other places to open. A place called 107 opened, I think it's around Hackney in Covent Garden. Ten Cases has been a popular wine Mm -hmm. bar. And they just opened a place called Baudry Green that's a wine bar. Um, And the problem is that now it's become such a popular model that I think places that are actually restaurants are calling themselves wine bars. like In the way that everyone wants to say natural wine. Like you don't just pour wine, you pour natural wine. And so it's very quickly become an overused concept interesting have we reached peak wine bar we've reached peak wine bar you're right terrible news for those of us how about peak natural wine are we there yet or is that some time well i think it's a good that's a good question i think i'm here for natural wine but everyone i mean it's sort of like saying something that doesn't need to be said you know it's just like say that you're pouring wine you don't need to say natural anymore exactly i mean there's a whole other conversation to be had about the evolution of natural wine which we will have to do on another occasion but i want to i want you to look into your crystal ball for us and tell us what you're seeing considering you predicted so accurately the trend for this year what are you what are you thinking about when it comes to the food scene in 2024 i will say i think I love London. I have fallen in love with London. I think Manchester is going to get bigger and bigger next year. I think we're going to be seeing a lot more energy outside of London. It's already happening. Edinburgh is a super hot food city right now, and it's just going to be bigger in 2024. I think you're going to see a lot more local ingredients, partly because of climate, partly because of all the issues people are having and price concerns. So already you've seen some really good sushi places like Dining's SW3 sourcing local food and not necessarily flying it in from Japan. 
And I think you're going to see even more chefs highlighting the fact that they've got vegetables from Cornwall and seafood from, you know, from that coast as well. That's going to be, you're going to see more and more of that. And I think also this is very bold, so you can fact check me on it. I think we're going to start seeing the end of small plates. <gasps> We've eaten so many small plates. So much food has been eaten off small plates. I think we're I going a, a little lot bit of opinions back. about this. Oh my God, Stephen, well, we will keep talking. I know Sarah's bring have back some big too. plates. I know because yes. inevitably you just end up spending three times as much money because so you think true. I'm going to need loads more. That's exactly right. Exactly, yeah. and I think there's well, more. Like the Wolseley City just opened, and they don't have like a small plate section. It's a place where you get, you know, regular size plates size of foods, portions. and you have like th- foods food and you have like three courses you know so i think that sort of idea mm. that not everything is a snackathon is um is going to yeah. be prevalent the, the in three course meal is coming back I you think, heard it here first yes you did <laughs> sarah talk to us about the cultural scene in london this year what stood out for you what was your big highlight well, I was just talking about this with my editors at Business Week, and we were saying between me and uh, my boss in New York, Chris, the editor of uh, Pursuits, we've seen over 100 plays and musicals this year. Wow. So we've seen quite a lot, and there's some really amazing shows on in London. And my favorite, actually, is Operation Mincemeat, which start. Have you seen it, Stephen? No, I haven't. Sorry, I could have gasped there about it. No, I haven't, but it's very high on my list. Go on, tell me about it's it. It's going on till June, so you have plenty of time to book, for both you and your listeners. But it's actually about an MI5 intelligence operation during World War II. They um, stole a corpse, MI5, mm-hmm. dressed it up as an army officer, Spoiler washed alert. it up ashore on Spain with fake invasion plans of Sicily, right? It sounds like it's a stranger than fiction story. Yeah. But it makes for a really hilarious musical with some really touching sad scenes as well. So who would have thought this crazy World War II operation would be the best musical on stage, but it really is. Thank you to you both, Kate Crater, our food editor, and Sarah Rappaport, our Bloomberg Pursuits UK correspondent. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor, Stephen Carroll, and coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look at what's ahead for the Asian markets in 2024. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything. Everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. 
As year 2023 comes to a close, we take a look at what's ahead for markets in China, India, and Japan in 2024. Let's get to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host, Doug Krisner. Tom, the challenges ranged from a flopped reopening trade to faltering economic growth, as well as an unprecedented outflow of foreign capital. So as we wrap up 2023, we turn to the outlook for the year ahead. Bloomberg's Philippe Pacheco is with us. He is the capital markets reporter for APAC Equity. He joins us from our studios in Hong Kong. I think we can agree, Philippe, that for China, the major problem, not only for the economy, but for markets as well, has been this weak sentiment. Maybe there was some initial excitement around a strong recovery post-pandemic. That never materialized. Is there any optimism that we can expect in the new year that will mean that 2024 is better than 23? Well, that's correct. I think that it's it's very hard to find that optimism out there, especially at this time of the year. We usually do a round of talks with bankers, get their outlook for what they're expecting, at least for the first quarter of the, the following year. When we had these conversations last year, most of them were very, very positive about uh, the outlook for China, especially because at that point we knew that the country was opening up. There was the whole excitement uh, towards the, the fact that um, China's economy would be way more open than it was during the, the COVID years. And what we saw in equity capital markets was this gigantic frustration. For example, China was uh, responsible, mainly in China mostly, for about half of all of the deals within ECM that happened in 2022. Uh, this time, this year, we have China representing less than 30% for global offerings. So uh, it's very hard to say when this is going to actually improve. There's no perspective that there is a better first half of 2024 than what we saw in this uh, the two final quarters of 23. And I think that what investors, bankers, and companies are looking uh, for right now is indication from the Chinese government that there will be support, that there will be measures to actually bring back optimism towards the economy, and therefore they will be looking for money again. Yeah, I think the slump in the property market has been the central problem in restoring confidence. Is there any signal that the government is sending that it understands the severity of the problem? I think that there are signals that they are willing to address such problems. There has been indications of support in different ways, especially to the real estate sector. Is it enough? I don't think so. When we talk to bankers, they say that they need more, like the market needs more. They need like a bazooka, something that would clear, send a clear message of support that would give indications that there is a turnaround, that we've hit the bottom and from now on things should get better. I don't think anyone has seen that yet. I don't think there is indication that this is on the way. For example, when we talk to bankers looking at IPOs, they say that we need to see bigger deals. We need to see those blackbusters deals with names that cash the headlines. And we need to see a few of them performing quite well for a while. We cannot see deals flopping. We cannot see IPOs coming to market and then uh, just grabbing negative attention. This is the worst that you can have for a market that is very sensitive to sentiment. And that's one of the things that I think has contributed to uh, foreign investors removing a lot of capital out of the markets. Not a lot of evidence that the government really understands what the problem is to the extent that they're really willing to throw, as you mentioned, the bazooka uh, behind it. To what extent is that lack of foreign capital creating 
difficulty for capital markets more broadly? I think that it creates a, a lot of gaps, let's say, within equity capital markets. For example, you have outflows for all kinds of uh, Chinese investments, including equities in the in the secondary market. Hong Kong's market is going through a very, very hard time. The index here in Hong Kong, the HCI, is down uh, more than 15% for the year. We also have the benchmarks in the mainland uh, down by, by a similar percentage. So it's just a very, very hard scenario. And you see money just getting out of uh, Chinese assets as a whole. Of course, that impacts the way companies that are considering to tap the markets to make their plans as well. Companies are pretty much on that uh, state right now. They are they are on pause, they're on hold, because they do not know if this improvement will come. And then at the end of the day, of course, if you, if you have money flowing out of China, this money is going somewhere else. We see a lot of optimism, for example, when it comes to uh, assets trading in India and also activity in ECM for India, because this is a huge emerging market that's just like bringing a lot of positive headlines. And then another market that's catching a lot of attention for this particular segment is also Japan. Japan is a developed economy. It's a completely different economy than what you would see in China. But of course, it's been a great year for Japan, Japanese assets, especially equities. Yeah, it's been a very good year for the market in India. I think the major market measures are up double digits in U.S. taller terms. But if you look at the year ahead, are analysts assuming that this positivity is going to continue or might we see a bit of a pause? Is it a market that is maybe a little overextended? It, that's a very interesting point because we do know that India is trading at very expensive levels right now when it comes to equities trading. But one of the bankers that I talked to was someone that is close to the Indian market. He said, uh, we do know that India is expensive and we hear that from our clients. But at the same time, we ask, are you willing to buy? Are you willing to invest at this price? And they say, yes. You can see things performing well. You can see assets just from the fixed income side and also from the equity side doing quite well. That's what investors are looking for in a tough year like this. For example, if you look just of all of the names that sold big stakes in Indian companies, listed Indian companies this year, we're talking about SoftBank, the Canada Pension uh, Plan Investment Board. We have Tencent that had several stakes in companies that listed in India. So these are big global investors that they are coming to market to sell big chunks, let's say five to 10% of the stakes that they own in such companies because price is good and they are making money out of it. When those companies put those blocks and those placements out in the market and you see them trading up two days after, this is very rare. You clearly see demand coming from the domestic market in India and also from foreigners. So there is appetite. There is a lot of interest. This is India's moment. Is it going to last whenever China is back, whenever activity in China picks up? That's the main question for Indian mm. assets and for Indian issuers. I think one of the surprises this year in the Asia-Pacific has been the performance of the Japanese equity market. I don't know how much of that has to do with anticipation of some type of change in policy from the Bank of Japan, but I think uh, the Nikkei in dollar terms is up more than 17% year-to-date. The outlook for Japan, is it contingent, the positivity contingent upon uh, the BOJ maybe adjusting policy? Or is there something else going on with Japan Inc. That, that's driving the gains? I think Japan is a very, very, very curious case. As you mentioned, there's a lot of it that is 
related to the BOJ, the moment in, Jap in Japan's economy. This is a, a turning point for a country that hasn't seen inflation for like decades. And uh, there is an, a lot of attention that's going towards it. I think when it comes specifically to the equities market and all of these companies that are actually trying to raise funds uh, through equities, the, it's very interesting to see that this comes in combination with a lot of measures that are being done by the local stock exchange to actually boost governance and to make uh, maybe combine this particular moment in the macro uh, aspect of the country to what's happening uh, within the corporate sectors. So you have, for example, the stock exchange in Tokyo asking companies to just improve all of the governance levels that they have. They are trying to attract more names to the market and they are also trying to improve the holdings, the what they call in Japan as cross holdings, basically a lot of Japanese big conglomerates, they own shares of, of their sister companies. And this is not seen in a good way when it comes to, to, to governance aspects. So the the local regulator and the, the also the exchange is just trying to unwind such trades. And there's a lot of companies that are coming to market to actually execute it. Philippe, great that you could be with us and uh, share your expertise on what's happening in these various equity markets across the APAC. That is uh, Philippe Pacheco, who covers APAC equity capital markets uh, from our bureau in Hong Kong. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia beginning at 7 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Doug Krisner. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a look at some of the big political items on the agenda in Washington in the new year. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Lawmakers will start the new year running with a full slate of legislative priorities as soon as they get back from their holiday break. That includes another possible government shutdown. For more, we turn to Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. Yeah, thanks, Tom. 2024 is looking to be a very busy year in and around Washington between 
the primary contest for the Republican Party really kicking off in earnest and the threat of a government shutdown. And that's just in January. There's a lot more that's going to come throughout the year. So we wanted to get more on what we can expect in the year ahead for politics. I caught up with Henrietta Trey's Aveda Partners, and we started with her thoughts on the likelihood of a shutdown. You know, I think that we have staved off a shutdown because shutting down is actually worse than taking the votes to keep things functioning at their current levels. So I think January 19th and February 2nd are just going to roll into March and April, June and July, probably two to six times through the first half of 2024. Um, The most important date for investors, since we've sort of bifurcated the appropriations bills and only have partial shutdowns of pieces of the government um, in the event that there are shutdowns. I think the most important date for investors is sort of the run up to May 1st, particularly in the defense space, because I don't think they're going to avoid the sequester early. And I don't think they're going to come up with some grand bipartisan deal, as y'all were sort of alluding to earlier. Um, There is no bipartisanship on Capitol Hill around anything other than, hey, let's just not shut down. Um, So I think as we get into mid-April, investors in the defense space who are looking down the barrel of a 1% spending cut for defense um, are probably going to get a little anxious, a lot of headline risk as they seek to avoid that at the 11th hour. Um, So maybe keep May first on your radar and maybe Mm. April 15th around then for headline risk to start moving. Before we can even get to 2025, to your point, Henrietta, people need to last 2024, which brings me to the Mike Johnson question, of course, the relatively newly minted Speaker of the House who has passed a continuing resolution with Democratic support, which is what got Kevin McCarthy kicked out of the job in the first place earlier this fall. So I just wonder how much longer he's really got if he's going to need to fund the government and potentially does need to kick the can and House conservatives don't like it. Right. And you've already seen the House conservatives say, you know, the deal that was negotiated last May with Kevin McCarthy, A, he's not even a speaker, B, he's not even a congressman anymore. And then the next question is, how long is Johnson going to be the speaker? Um, In D.C., if you go to meetings with staff, they'll say, is it going to be six months or six years? The verdict, the jury is very much out on that one. And it's a popular power game, which does not bode well. Um, I think the honeymoon phase is over. Um, I'm going to be really interested to see how members start reacting when they get back into town. It's impossible for about eight to 20 members of the far right to agree to any spending level. And we're not talking about huge chunks of change right now. The difference between the far right and the moderates in the Senate, which have overwhelmingly passed all 12 appropriations bills, is like $25 billion. And we're talking about a 1.5-ish trillion dollar package. So for the difference to be $25 billion, it's like, you know, me asking you for five bucks, it should be no big deal. (laughs) But they literally just don't have the votes for anything that sounds like yes. So those guys are always going to be voting no, which forces Speaker Johnson to constantly be negotiating with Democrats, which is, of course, anathema to the far right. But they are ironically the ones that are enforcing that reality on Speaker Johnson. So um, I hope he can make it through April. Um, Obviously, we've seen how long a series of votes can go on the potential for another speaker. Mm -hmm. So I think that'll be drawn out. Uh, Nobody wants to do that. But memories fade and maybe they've forgotten how uncomfortable that was in October. That's Henrietta Trey's managing partner of Veda Partners. And Tom, it looks like we're in for a wild ride in the coming year. Thank you, Kaylee. That was Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines, and you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. 
Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 